Roll her out the barrel. Whee! Voice sound a little different. Sound uh, not quite the norm, not quite the usual guy. Yeah, it's the new guy, Jeff Cougar Kozlowski of the Greenfield Village La Di Da Baseball Club. Roller out the barrel podcast, live ish, coast to coast, where all your vintage baseball needs. You meet the players, we interview them. We hopefully you get a nice joy out of the vintage baseball world. And joining us today as the co-host and manipulator of the technology on the other end here, the barrel roller himself, Mr. Matthew Barnard. Matthew, how are you doing, my friend? I'm doing great, and it feels phenomenal to not be in charge. I'm going to sit back and enjoy myself uh, and let you worry about things. Take it away, oh, Cougar. I'm, I am I am looking forward to trying not to run in this ship aground, my friend. So if, uh, if we get anything from Podbean that says, hey, uh, Matt, I know all the years of hard work, but uh, don't put that guy on anymore. I apologize ahead of time. But, but you know, it's, it is my pleasure to have been uh, made an, an official co-host of the show, keeping the seat warm for the Swamp, Fro- Swamp Fox, Rudy Frias. Um, but Beryl gave me the opportunity to try to secure some guests. And for anybody who's ever listened to these episodes and you know anything about me, you could almost start a drinking game with the amount of times that Cougar brings up being a teacher. It is something that I am proud of. I've been doing it for 16 years now, and I know there's many other people that have been doing it for longer and have been doing it in more places and have done a lot more things than I have. But boy, us, us teachers are a, we're, we are a fraternity, whether you're pre-K or at the collegiate level, we, uh, we share a bond. And I know there's a lot of you in the vintage baseball world that you yourself are officially professional teachers, uh, even when you are not on the baseball field teaching the people that are going by about what your game is like. And so I just say for all of us that are doing the teaching, I salute every, every last one of you here because it is, it is a difficult job. It's difficult work, but man, I, I don't think I could see myself doing much else. It's about half. It's about half in Michigan. Is that, is that over-exaggerating? 40 to 50%. You know, I, I, I feel like there's, there's a lot of us. I feel like no matter what team I talk to, I find somebody that's a teacher and we just get sidetracked and we just go on our way. And so when Beryl, gave me the opportunity to recruit guests. I was just going through my school emails and I came upon a summer symposium. And as soon as I can secure the funding and find somebody to watch my daughter for a week, I'm going to be on my merry way out to Gettysburg. And I'm going to be hopefully meeting with the two gentlemen that have graciously offered to be on the show today. Uh, I'd like to very much uh, give thanks and appreciation to our guest today. Uh, our first guest uh, is a assistant professor of sports studies at Manhattanville College. And we'll be talking about all the things that he has done and is going to be doing uh, 
but please thank you for coming on mr seth tannenbaum seth how are you doing my friend i'm doing really well thank you so much for having me this is uh, really exciting and i'm looking forward to a great chat we appreciate you coming on board here uh and our second guest uh is the the last name may be familiar to those who have been uh, listening to the show for quite some time. Uh, that said, I'd like to welcome aboard another teacher, three teachers for the price of one here, Mr. Brian Sheehy. Brian, thanks for coming on board. Thank you for having me, even though I'm the second Sheehy to be on the show. Um, my brother did a couple, I did a really good job a couple of years ago, so hopefully I can keep up with him. Don't hold well if, if you uh, don't hold Chris's episode against us. Uh, that was for I think that was way back. If you go back in the archives of the Roller Around the Barrel Show, you'll find uh, Chris Sheehy. And uh, back when I didn't know what I was doing, and that still holds true today. But back then, I really, really, really didn't know what I was doing. But anyway, Chris was a good sport, so I appreciated having him on the show. So the so so why why I've got Seth and why I've got Brian on board here uh, stems from the email that I got from an organization and for anybody that's in the American history teaching field or really in the social studies field in general you are familiar with the name Gilder Lehrman uh, Gilder Lehrman do really really good work uh, a lot of really valuable resources that are provided to teachers, a lot of really cool awards, really a lot, a lot of good stuff that Gilder Lehrman does. And Seth and Brian here are going to be leading one of the summer symposiums at Gettysburg, uh, July 7th, I believe, and they'll correct me if I'm wrong on that, uh, but July 7th, and they will be leading a symposium entitled Sport in American History. So let me start off, uh, and Seth, Brian, I will uh, kind of let you decide how you want to approach this first, but let's start with where does this idea, uh, and I'll read the synopsis a little bit later, but where does the idea of teaching sport in American history, what is the genesis of this? Yeah, Brian, cool if I start? Sure. All right. So uh, when I was at my previous job at Leslie University, I ended up working for Gilder Lerman doing a one, taking part in a one-day symposium, one-day sort of teacher professional development on immigration in United States history. And I provided historical context. And then uh, a master high school teacher came in and walked a lot of people through how to do the lesson plans that Gilder Lerman provides that are, as Jeff pointed out, excellent and very available, really good stuff. And then my former colleague at another institution at the University of Central Oklahoma, Justin Olmsted, who knew Brian through National Humanities Council? Yeah, we were both fellows at the National Humanities uh, Center. Yeah, um, connected us. Uh, at that time, we were like 10 miles apart, but we still haven't met in person because I was in Watertown at that point and Brian was not too far away. Um, and then Brian and I um, reached out to Gilder Lerman by email. We eventually had a meeting with them. We were basically trying to get them to start a program of one-day professional developments around sport in American history. 
And they said, oh, that's a great idea. We're going to try and get funding for that. And I think they're still trying to do that. But in the interim, they came to us with this idea of this three-day symposium at Gettysburg alongside, I think there's another one at the same time on the Civil War and another one. I can't remember all the other things that are going on at the same time. Um, where I'm going to be giving three days of interactive lectures and Brian is going to be doing for hand. Uh, so I've, I'll give you a little bit of my background. Um, I teach sports in American culture, sports of the past. So there are a couple of electives on sports history. I've put together uh, professional development and different resources on how teachers can incorporate themes and, and topics around sport into their classroom. So when Seth and I started talking, I had a bunch of resources and he has the, the content knowledge. And um, from doing a billion professional developments myself, I, I think that it's really meaningful when you have the academic perspective and that historical background and then kind of that master teacher uh, perspective. And you have like, well, how can I take that big concept and put it into a lesson? How can I take that primary source and put it into a lesson? So. I believe that's going to be some of the stuff that I'm doing. We haven't really completely flushed out all the stuff that I'm doing, but um, I would envision that'll be a lot of the, uh, uh, the ways that I'll be the master teacher there. So how does one become, Brian, I'll ask you, how does one become a master teacher? I mean, it's a cool title and, you know, based on the, you know, things about you, it's certainly well-earned. But how, how do you officially get the title of master teacher with Gilder Lerman? So it's a very strange topic. I, I ran into it last summer. Um, I was asked to be a master teacher down in Florida with a bunch of history teachers in Florida, which was really, really interesting. Um, uh, the National Council for History Education asked me to come down and be a master teacher. And it's kind of like, well, what did I do to be a Um, a bunch of um, like the courses that I mentioned, a bunch of published um, different lesson plans and things like that. So I think that's what would, I guess, give me the, the mantle of master teacher. Yeah, they sort of decreed it upon you, right? You can't, yeah. you, you know, they knighted you, master teacher. That just sort of happens. <laughs> Wherever I'll be known as master teacher. <laughs> They really stand on the title too, you know. <laughs> like one of your kids is like Mr. Sheehy, and like no, 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 that's Mr. Sheehy, master teacher to you. <laughs> uh, they they mentioned the uh, the symposium courses and uh, and other ones that might be available. So I know for a lot of us in the teaching world, sports are great, but there's also little things uh, that also get our attention. But other symposium courses, for those who are wondering, uh, there is the course uh, from from Gary Gallagher about the American Civil War, which he does a, uh, I think he's done something with the uh, Great Courses series. Uh, I think he's done a series on the Civil War. Native American history, uh, America Heads West, the Civil Rights Movement, the American Revolution, and the American Presidency. So uh, this is one of those, if you are uh, a history teacher in some way, this, this is an organization you should probably get uh, get to know with it here. Uh, for for Seth and for Brian's course, this is the, the course description of it reads, this course examines the historical development of sport in the United States from a societal and cultural viewpoint 
and explores the significance of sport in American history, looking beyond the action on the field of play. So you guys still got said you got stuff to, to flush out with, but give us put a little meat on this bone here. Like lure us in. What are some things we could potentially expect? Okay. Um, so the beyond the field of play is really something that comes straight out of my college syllabi because I teach a class on baseball in American society. And on day one, I got to stand up there and say this, you know, I am capable of talking endlessly about what happened in the game last night, but that's not what we're doing in this class. Uh, we're going to look at how baseball impacted, influenced, and was influenced by broader society, race, class, gender, immigration, urbanization, suburbanization. It's using sport. No, my go-to is baseball, but in this class, I'll be broader than that. I'll be more inclusive than that. Um, using sport to examine and unpack these other elements of American society. Because from my perspective, um, if I can give a teacher uh, this tool in their bag to use, you know, once or twice during a semester of I'm going to explore this topic through sports so that the people who maybe aren't as interested in the rest of my history class are going to be like, Ooh, this is exciting. And this is interesting to me. Uh, just like they might explore a different topic through a different lens. It's giving teachers the, the background content to be able to pick which lens they're going to use to explore the topics that, that are on their syllabus. Seth, let me ask you a question. Uh, I was listening to what you were saying. I got a question that I think you're going to maybe uh, hit on uh, during this event, and I'm curious about the, the, the economical situation for poor neighborhoods. The problem I've heard for years when it comes to baseball specifically is that when you live in a poor neighborhood, you don't grow up playing baseball because you need so many people and you need more equipment and games that are much easier like basketball when you just have, you just need a ball and you can play by yourself <laughs> or you can play with one friend, but baseball, it takes gloves and balls and bats and 17 other people. If you really want to play a full game, which nobody can do as a kid, no matter what neighborhood you live in. But uh, is that still something that is being addressed or has the topic on that shifted to something else? Uh, I think that's sort of a both answer. Um, people are still very much concerned about that. You look at major league baseball, um, they are talking about their RBI programs and you know, reviving baseball in inner cities and, and their other programs to try and make it easier for people of limited economic means to get into the game. Uh, I still, you know, I don't have kids who are playing in, in any kind of elite travel baseball, but I teach kids who grew up playing elite travel baseball. And the costs of that are insane to me. Um, and I think that really does get in the way of a lot of people playing baseball in urban areas. But it is far from the only thing that gets in the way. Um, space is a problem. Like you think about how much space does a basketball court take or one hoop take versus how much space do you need, you know, for batting practice. If you don't have a cage, you need a lot of space. Um, there are also recording um, in progress issues of who, um, 
sort of is welcomed into the game and how that overlaps with, with who tends to live in poor urban areas in the United States. So there are histories of racial discrimination, direct and indirect, that also impact all of those things. And, you know, it's money, it's access, it's time, it's all sorts of various things. And yeah, I think you're right that people have just focused on the one and Major League Baseball is trying to address that. But as most things in society are, it's a bunch of different elements that contribute to one end result. And only trying to address one of those elements won't solve the problem for everybody. You have to sort of go at it in multiple different ways. And Brian? I think, I mean, coming from a parent who just got home from his two children playing travel ball, I, I mean, I definitely agree it is an insane amount of money, but I live in a community that is, is, has a high Dominican population and you still find that, that those, um, those people are still finding baseball and still getting involved in baseball. It's not in the same manner as, as like the travel ball parent, but they are still playing baseball. Uh, baseball to the Dominican people is, is they, they don't lack focus on baseball. They don't give their focus to many other things. Like, uh, if you're Dominican baseball is what you want to play. It's what you've been brought up. Like is the God of sport. And, uh, it's different here. Uh, if you're American, there's uh, way too many things to choose from, actually, and uh, and you you don't have that focus that that one focus on one thing to get really good at it. And uh, but Brian, I did want to ask you a question: uh, staying on baseball and teaching, and you're you're bringing baseball into the classroom to teach sport and history and stuff like that. My question would be this with the lack of focus that I just brought up that it seems every generation loses a little bit more uh, of that focus when you're bringing up baseball, which I mean, truth be told, baseball can be boring if you're not invested. It's boring to watch and it's boring to talk about unless you have, unless you're invested. If you're trying to bring baseball into a lesson plan of some sort, how hard is it to keep kids interested in the topic of baseball or whatever you're introducing baseball into? Well, I think going back to what Seth said earlier, I'm not giving a history of any baseball. I think baseball and sport in general serves as a microcosm for American history. And in many ways, uh, I teach a sports and American culture, but I, I also look at it from a global perspective. So I think regardless of what you're teaching the topic, I think you can integrate sports themes and in, in that into it. I'm not talking about the 1869 Cincinnati Red, like Red Stockings uh, tour in, in every game that they played. But if I was talking about how they were able to expand from the East Coast to the West Coast and spread the game, I could talk about the Transcontinental Railway. I could, if I'm talking about um, the rise of sporting goods or, or the rise of, of, of mass products, I could talk about Spalding and it, vertical integration, horizontal integration through the lens of, of Spalding. So those are the things that I, I would do. I would never, 
it kind of go into what Seth said. I, when I teach my classes, just the, the students just think we're going to like watch sports all the, like all the time and just hang out. And no, we're, we're going to do some, some deeper thinking in, in that. So I think you can get students excited. I mean, history is boring too. I mean, I hear that all the time in class. Oh, history's so boring. But I think if you do it in a, in a way that is dynamic and unique, and by integrating sports themes, I think that's what makes it unique, even if they don't necessarily love baseball or sports in general. I, I love hearing these points. I mean, this is, I mean, there's little bits that I've, I've kind of filtered into, into my classes as well. But, I mean, it's amazing to see how much baseball has really become, uh, you know, like you said, like a microcosm of greater concepts and greater points, uh, you know, to help teach how this country is. I mean, um, so, so looking at kind of at, at us individually here, Seth, I want to talk to you about uh, your, your latest report uh, in the, well, not your report, but your writings here in the Journal of Sports History entitled How Major League Baseball Parks Reveal the White Middle Class's Views on Cities. Uh, tell me about how this, this, this is a great read. Um, again, yeah. it's in the Journal of Sports History. How how did this how did this project come to life? Yeah, uh, this is um, bits and pieces that are also were also a part of my dissertation that is now my manuscript that I am hopefully getting close to the finish line on. That's a whole other story. And in 2021, the North American Society for Sport History, which is the academic society that publishes the Journal of Sport History, um, put out a call for papers for a conference on sport history as intellectual history. And I do a lot of sport history and I do not do much intellectual history. Or at least I didn't think I did much intellectual history. Um, so I reached out to the people who are running the, the conference and I said, this is what I think counts as intellectual history. And they said, yeah, apply. So I applied. We had this wonderful conference. I think there were 12 of us who all read each other's papers and it was two days long and we all gave each other feedback. Um, and my, my paper got stronger. My, my manuscript got stronger because the feedback they gave me um, really fed into that. And uh, it, you know, worked its way through the peer review process, which if you've had the excruciating pleasure of peer review process, it's uh, really frustrating. Um, it worked its way through that. Uh, I dealt with all the comments and all the other things, and uh, it came out recently, uh, which was quite a lot of fun. But uh, the, the paper is sort of rooted in the notion that going all the way back to, you know, basically the creation of baseball it has been a sport dominated by middle class white Americans uh, as players initially um, and then continuing as fans. And there are lots of reasons for that, right? If you're a baseball team owner, you want to get the most revenue from the most people and who are the largest group of people with enough money to attend baseball games, it tends to be the middle class. Um, so they're trying to uh, put their ballparks in places and design their ballparks in ways that are appealing to the people they're trying to draw. So you can sort of read backwards on what steps they're taking in these ballparks, be it in the 1960s trying to be very suburbanized and very modern and very technological, fitting in with the, the modernist architecture, you know, ugly concrete donuts, but 
that was very trendy in the 1960s and 1970s. And then when you get to places like Camden Yards, oh, actually, concrete donuts are really boring. Let's get back into the city. Let's use this nostalgia uh, because that's what the middle class is really interested in. And then the the paper closes with examining uh, Truist Park. I almost called it SunTrust. Truist Park uh, outside of Atlanta, where you sort of see kind of a mix of that suburbanization with all with with also that that um, retro kind of flair to it. Seth, how far back is your research gone? Uh, my my manuscript starts with the the first iteration of the polo grounds. I don't do much with the first iteration of the polo grounds in the 1880s because, well, first off, the first iteration of the polo grounds wasn't much, but um, there's not really many, many sources there. But uh, my my manuscript starts with the with the polo grounds. It goes through all the different polo grounds. There were technically four of them, or there were really kind of three of them because one of them burned down. And they just built in the same place. Uh, and then I do uh, I look at Yankee Stadium. Um, I look at Dodger Stadium, the Astrodome, and Camden Yards. Um, and they're not just case studies, but I, I picked those ballparks because they're particularly influential and particularly telling, and they have good source pages, which is really important. Yeah, hugely important to anybody who's ever done any sort of research or had to put together, you know, written a chapter for a book or had to write some kind of article for anything. You got the sources. You you can make something out of it. So, um, so with the you know with that, I kind of want to ask both of you this since you're bringing up stadiums. Uh, how many have you been to, and which one's your favorite? Do my league fields count? Yeah, sure. Yeah, because I think they give cool character to them. I'm embarrassed to say I don't have a running total that I know of. I'd have to really sit down and think about that for a really long time to get a running total. Oh my goodness. I went to like 20 minor league games last year. I'm going, I'm actually leaving uh, Thursday to go down to see a Phillies spring training game and a Blue Jays spring training game. Uh, nice. But I'll say the Woo Sox, the new Woo, uh, Woo Sox stadium in Worcester is really nice. That was, that one. is designed by some of the very same people who did Camden Yards. That's the Janet Marie Smith. Creation. It definitely has that vibe, and like they created a whole like market next door. It definitely, mm-hmm. I'm actually going to Baltimore in August too. And after reading your uh, chapter, oh man, better make sure I know where I'm going and all that. Yeah, well, it's. Uh, I mean, it's changed. What's crazy to me is that you know that park opened more than 30 years ago. I remember going. I think in its first or second season. Um, I don't know how many ballparks I've been to. I have been to the Kingdom, which is always a fun thing to say. Um, that I was two years old at the Kingdome and before Ken Griffey Jr. debuted, which I guess says how old I am. Um, and I'm going this year. Um, I've got a conference in Denver when the Phillies are in town, which I'm excited about. I'm going to go to Coors Field for the first time. But I am also going to London in June to watch the Phillies and the Mets play at London Stadium, which was the Olympic Stadium in 20. 20- Wells and is now the home of West Ham United. Um, and I'm very curious to see how one fits a baseball diamond onto a soccer field. Are they doing a series, like four games, Seth? Just two games. Uh, so it's a Saturday and a Sunday, and I think they're giving days off on both ends, uh, at least a day off on both ends for the, for the teams to travel. 
So I've got tickets, uh, I think it's Saturday evening London time and Sunday afternoon London time. So Saturday afternoon East Coast time and Sunday morning East Coast time. Uh, and it should be really interesting. Uh, Brian, you brought up Worcester. I went to my first Red Sox game uh, at Fenway Park last summer. And uh, aside from all the tears, like I broke out in tears like six different times, uh, I actually got the great opportunity to sit next to a very rabid female Red Sox fan. And she uh, started to complain about how the, I believe it was Paw Tuckett, the minor league team for the Red Sox had moved. Is that is the club that moved to Worcester? Is that, is that correct? So, yeah. she, so she says, uh, yeah, they used to go to Pawtucket. Now it's Worcester. Who goes to Worcester? Nobody goes to Worcester. Am I right? And she's looking around, and I'm like, this is the most Boston moment I will ever have. It was the, it was, I didn't, I, I think I said, who goes to Worcester? At least a dozen times to my wife the rest of the trip. Uh, phenomenal. But she, she refuses to go. Uh, how far away from Boston is Worcester? Half hour, maybe, right? Yeah, forty-five minutes, something like that. Yeah, not that bad. She was, yeah, I'm about. She was very I'm about a half hour north of Boston. It takes me about 35, 40 minutes to get to Worcester. Seth, are you going uh, to the London match to see the Mets or the Phillies? Oh, I'm a Phillies fan. I grew up in Philadelphia. Um, my dad and I have had Sunday season tickets since the last year of the vet. Because if we got a season ticket plan at the last year of the vet, they were going to give us access to opening day tickets for the first year of Citizens Bank Park. So we, uh, well, pandemic doesn't count. So I think that's 20 years now because the last year of the vet was 2003. Um, and I, that also managed to luckily include both halves of game five of the 2008 World Series. I went and I got rained on. And then two days later, I went back and it wasn't raining and they won. Phenomenal. I went to Philadelphia uh, last year for my first time, and that's a that's a great stadium uh, where the Phillies play. Uh, I really enjoyed uh, my watch there. And then I did go to Camden Yards and got rained out. So I sat outside in the rain for a half an hour because it didn't it started raining right when they were going to open up the gates to let people in. So they never ended up opening the gates. I was just like, I just need the gates open just so I can go in. I don't need to see a baseball game, but you got to let me in, and it never happened, so I have to go back to Baltimore. Uh, They're very nice gates, though. They put a lot of time and effort (laughs) into choosing those gates to make them look very uh, fit in with the rest of the warehouse and with Camden Station. I've read read the memos. They really thought a lot about those gates that kept you out. Yes, you're a man who would be worried about the gates, and I was a man who was worried about Boog Powell's Barbecue in right field. But, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> there's something for everybody at a ballpark. Yep. Uh, Jeff, back to you. Okay. So, so let's so want to bring this, uh, swing this over to uh, kind of the name of the show here about being about vintage baseball. So, Brian, president of the Essex Baseball Organization. Uh, so, for those who are not familiar, uh, most teams, you refer to them as a baseball club. And you all are a baseball organization. What separates the Essex Baseball Organization 
from just a standard baseball club. You have to listen to my brother's podcast. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> um, so we're actually a organization because we have four teams based out of Newbury, Massachusetts. So all four of our teams, um, the, the Lowell Baseball Club, which was a team that played in the 1860s, the Portsmouth Rockinghams, which was also a team that played in the 1860s up in uh, Portsmouth, uh, New Hampshire. The Lynn Live Oaks, which was a team that played in the 1870s, um, which I'm actually writing an article about Bud Fowler for the Hall of Fame. Um, which uh, He was the first black baseball player to uh, play professionally when he played for the uh, pitch for the Lynn Live Oaks in 18 or yeah 1878. Um our fourth team is the Newburyport Clam Diggers. Really interesting name. Um, they're, they, they played in the 1880s. Uh, um, so all four of our teams are teams that played. We have a travel team. We started, I started playing uh, about 22 years ago for the Essex Baseball Club. And we would travel all, like, all over New England. But we found this field in Newbury, Massachusetts that's got corn in the outfield, a beer truck that shows up at all of our games and gives us free beer. So um, we kind of created our home field based out of Newbury, Spencer Pierce Little Farm. We have several hundred spectators at every game. So perfect place to play. Seth, tell us about your vintage baseball experience. I have I have very limited vintage baseball experience, but I'm going to use it as a, a to shill for one of my favorite ever academic conferences, which is the annual Cooperstown Symposium on Baseball and American Culture, which is just phenomenally cool. Uh, lots of scholars presenting their work at the Hall of Fame, run by some of my favorite people who are the librarians and archivists of the Hall of Fame, um, and you get to have dinner in the flat gallery. So you're sitting there at dinner and like over your shoulder are, you know, Bud Fowler's plaque is like right behind your head. Um, it's, it's very, you feel sort of out of place, but it's wonderful. In the middle of that conference, they pause all the presentations and they take everybody out in the Hall of Fame's backyard, which is where you know, there's a very famous statue of, I think it's Don Newcomb pitching to, um, Roy Campanella. Roy Campanella, right? Very famous statues. So sort of behind that, if you've been to the Hall of Fame. And everybody, you know, pauses the conference and plays town ball by whatever 1850s rules, I can't remember exactly, they have you uh, play by. So I presented a paper and I was wearing, you know, a nice dress shirt and some slacks and whatever. And then I went out and played town ball in my nice dress shirt and some slacks. Uh, and it was quite a lot of fun. And that is... I think the limit of my vintage baseball experience, although I do have a wonderful time in my baseball and American society class trying to describe the rules of town ball to students who just don't get it. They're like, wait, you can it, I was, it's mat ball, but it's baseball. And then they sort of get it. Like think about gym class kids. Then they figure it out. So I want, that is an awesome conference. I've, I presented at it a couple of times. I presented last year on Jim Thorpe and it's, I would highly recommend it to people out there. They're, they've done some education uh, panels and things like that. So definitely recommend it. So like, like that's a, Seth, I, and, and Brian, it brings up a, a really good point that I didn't have written down, but I do want to kind of jump on. And that is like, how, how do you describe baseball of the 1850s, 60s, 70s, and 80s? Like, do you see 
you know, in your classes, in your various sessions, it's, uh, you know, Seth at the, uh, you know, at the collegiate level, Brian at the uh, secondary level, do you see a difference in student connection between telling them versus showing them? And if so, like, give me some of those aha moments that maybe you've had or experienced. Yeah, uh, I recently found a video of uh, an international rounders match between Britain and Wales. Uh, rounders is a is primarily a women's sport in Great Britain, and this is a match. You know, I think the senior national team, so it's like eighteen to twenty five year old women playing rounders. Um, that really illuminates to the students just how these rules of this sort of pre-baseball or proto-baseball or offshoot of, you know, cousins of baseball, let's say, because they probably shared similar um, ancestor games, but diverged at different times, uh, how they looked and how they acted. Uh, and it's, it's really fascinating. They haven't watched a video of people playing rounders. You can find it on YouTube. Uh, to me, it looks like uh, people playing baseball with one of those little souvenir bats you get if you visit the Louisville Slugger Factory that's like 14 inches long. And it kind of looks like a golf ball they're playing with, but it's a little bit bigger and there are no gloves and you don't drop the bat. And it, seeing that, um, you know, I, I can't like take kids out. I don't really have time to take kids out on the quad and try and play town ball. Then now I'm thinking maybe I should do that. Um, that really opened them up to, okay, so there's what the difference, you know, looks like. I'm actually lucky I teach a course where I do this. Um, so I teach sports of the past. So we learn about the history of sport and then we play it. And I have a whole unit on different bat and ball games. So we play 1860s baseball. We play the Massachusetts game. We play cricket. We do, I've done rounders before, um, stool ball, things like that. And the students can see the connections and kind of the evolution of the game. Uh, we recreated, um, now this is really going deep. Protoball, which is a website that kind of documents all of the early bat and ball games. Um, Larry McRae, who just passed away uh, maybe a month or so ago, uh, awesome, awesome guy, came in and observed my class. And one time he said, hey, uh, we found this reference to this game called Wicket, and we have some rules. We have no idea how to, like, how to play it. Would you try it? So my class kind of became a, a, a kind of guinea pig on how this game was played. And it's, it's, a, it's a variant of, of cricket where you have a bale. Now, if you know anything about cricket, there's a, there's a bale and there's stumps. And typically the stumps are pretty high in, in modern cricket. The stumps in wicket were about six inches off the ground and the bale is six feet. And the ball is kind of like, like the size of a, of a Chicago softball and you roll it. And it was just, it was just wild. Um, the kids are like, this is weird. Um, but then once they started, I mean, you have the rules, but once they started playing, they figured out like, Hey, if I hit it a certain way, um, that's how you score. And, you know, kind of that, that trial and error was kind of cool. And it got the, um, bat and ball historians to kind of think in a different lens that, at what they're reading, um, through these accounts of games from the 1850s, 1860s. Brian, that's really cool. And it reminds me of when I assign the Knickerbocker rules. You know, we go through the rules. There's a game rule. There's a club rule. And then I ask them, okay, how does this game work? The Knickerbocker rules do not tell you how to play baseball. They don't say 
where you go when you hit the ball. They don't say where the – there is so much that isn't in the Knickerbocker rules that really moves that conversation forward to, oh, okay, this is not an invention. This is an iteration of something that existed before. I'm a firm believer that there's that there's references even earlier than some of the 1700s ones that they've already found. Um, I mean, in I think going to England, I like one of my dreams is to go to England and kind of trace some of that. I was in touch with a guy from I think it was Denmark, and there's different games there. Lapta, which is a, a long ball, all of these games that were in Eastern Europe and Russia. There's 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 like a well of stuff that I think you could jump into. Um, Finnish baseball is, is really, say, really what's cool. The, what's the game in Finland? That's the first yeah. one jumped in my head. Pesa, yeah. Pesa Pola, I played that with my class. They have no idea what's going on there. <laughs> the, the, coincidentally, I have uh, family friends who grew up, who lived in Cooperstown, grew up in Cooperstown, and the friend who was closest to my age moved to Finland where, you know, she's like, you know, you grow up in Cooperstown, you sort of functionally become an expert on baseball. Um, and now she's surrounded, well, not surrounded because they don't actually play that much, but surrounded by this weird Finnish baseball game uh, that she is really repeatedly fun. telling people in Cooperstown about. So I it's so So it's, yeah. it's, it's so weird. And yet, like, it, it tells you so much about the fact that your know, baseball, it's, it's not like basketball or volleyball where you can point to a day and a location and a time, like, in a specific rule set, like just like what you were saying about the about the Cartwright rules or about the the Knickerbocker rules, like the it's pretty much like this is the rules of how to get here, when to get here, how the game is supposed to start. But then it just says, but we do it the way Philadelphia did it. Like, well, how did they do it in Philadelphia? And it's just like you were doing, Brian. You're just kind of going backwards, further and further, like. It's kind of like what Henry Chadwick was saying, like, this isn't an invention. This is something that just kind of evolved. And who knows if we will ever have that one singular thing that Spalding was looking for. We may never have. We will. We won't. We will not. Um, so, we're, Brian, uh, sir, Brian, I want to talk to you real quickly about some of the non-baseball things that you've done. Um Going to talk to me real quick here. Tell me about the the World War One Museum Walk and your history learning lab, because these are things that I think students would be so beneficial that they'd be able to benefit so much from them. I do a lot of weird things in the classroom, like all the sports stuff. Um, but I also hey, that's not weird. Don't call that weird. <laughs> we're but we're all a little weird here. Non traditional. I'm I'm very non traditional. Yeah. All, right. um, all right, that works. 2018, I, I was like, hey, I've, I've always had like a real affinity towards museums, um, historical societies, and just playing vintage baseball too. Like we would always set up different displays and exhibits at minor league games, different events. And you can see like people come over and they want to pick stuff up. And I really got to thinking, I was like, I, I think a way to bring history to life is to bring objects in. So I've, I've gone down this deep rabbit hole of, of, object-based learning, material culture, um, using different uh, thinking routines to kind of pull um, students towards kind of thinking on their own. I mean, history can be extremely boring, as you know, um, and a lot of kind of like just regurgitating a bunch of facts. I think when you start putting an object in front of a student, you'd be like, well, what do you see? 
last night, might see a, a baseball bat. What makes you think that? And then you can kind of go through a whole series of, of, of questions that gets them to kind of think and, and really examine things in, 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 a, in a deeper way. Um, so 28, like 18, we um, got some funding. We got a bunch of donations, put together a whole lab. Um, in 2018, I was selected by um, National History Day to go over to France and tour all the battlefields of uh, France. And, you know, when you're so ingrained in World War One, taking classes um, and all of that, you kind of gravitate towards a bunch of stuff. So we got a bunch, we like got a, a grant for um, veterans to kind of tell stories of veterans through objects. So I was able to kind of grab a bunch of um, objects around World War One, World War Two, things, things like that. So that was the quickest I could do on object-based learning. I, I could do a whole podcast on that if you wanted to. Yeah, and I, th I think that's as teachers, we, you know, that that's the sort of stuff the good ones really gravitate towards. You know, it's unfortunate there are some kids that still get the, you know, the ones that will just give you a chapter to read out of the book, answer the questions, and move it on. And like I can see it in your face, Brian, and I feel it inside of me. Like that's the sort of stuff that just makes us nuts. So um, I want to take a real quick break. Uh, I've got some news in from uh, 1867. And we're going to take a quick pause, and then we're going to kind of pull together. We're going to bring up Gilder Lehrman uh, one last time, and then as our episodes go, we're going to hit them with the old pepper. So stand by for a little 1867 news break from Jonathan McLean. Jonathan, are you here, sir? This is your Roller Out the Barrel news break for Thursday, August 15th, 1867. I'm Jonathan McLean. Dateline, Providence, Rhode Island. The hometown Olympic Club recently hosted the Mechanic Club of Central Falls. Despite being equal in fly catches with six and home runs with four, that was about all the equality that existed between the two squads in this six-inning game. The Olympics did have some equality within their own lineup, as Mr. Calder and Mr. Hart each contributed ten runs apiece to the Olympic effort. Final score... Olympics, 74, Mechanics, 26. In Lenox, Massachusetts, the ninth game between the Old Elm Baseball Club of Pittsfield and the Lenox Club took place. This was a rough one for the hometown squad in a one-hour, 40-minute affair as the Old Elm started strong and never let up. The Lenox hitting was minimal as the heart of their order couldn't muster any runs. Final score, Old Elm, 37, Lenox, 10. Hoping for an equally solid winning effort, the second nine of the Old Elms took on a group of students from the Berkshire Medical College. While victory was not expected for the aspiring medical professionals, they came ready to play. Mr. Skinner, the pitcher for the Berkshires, and Mr. Pierce, their shortstop, each claimed home runs during the game. Despite an 11-run seventh inning by the Old Elms and a whitewashing of the students in their half of the ninth inning, there weren't enough meds to topple the doctors in these in this three-hour game final score berkshire medical college 37 second nine of the old elm 34 today's news break is brought to you by the kirkwood house come for the pyramidal cake stay for the handsome bouquets from the lady friends tell them you're old friends and you're their guest to the party i'm jonathan mclean and this has been your roller out the barrel news break 
All right, one of our favorite segments here on Roller Around the Barrel, Jonathan McLean and his sports breaks. If you go back in the archives, you can find dozens of these hidden gems scattered about. Uh, before we get back to Jeff, oh. uh, I did want to ask you guys a question. I guess I'm going to start with Brian. We're going to stay in about the same uh, question here. When you're growing up and you're learning about baseball, you hear Jackie Robinson is the first African-American player. Then when you dig deeper on your own, you find out Moses Flat or Fleetwood. Moses Fleetwood of the Toledo Blue Stockings was the first African-American player. And now Brian Sheehy comes into my life, and he tells me that Bud Fowler is the first African-American professional baseball player. Uh, and I assume that Seth understands this also to be true. Seth, would you agree with that? Uh, it's an interesting qualification. Um, the definition of professional is something that is very much up for debate. Um, I know that there were often in this era, and I don't have it in front of me, I don't have the research in front of me, but um, resorts that would hire um black people to work as porters, but their real job was to entertain the guests by playing baseball. Now, are those people professional baseball players or are they porters with a side gig? Um, I don't know, but these are people who are earning their livelihoods in part through playing baseball that other people are watching. So maybe they count. We don't know too much about these folks. Um, Fowler uh, and Brian can correct me here because he is going to be our Fowler expert uh, on this podcast, did not play in what was deemed Major League Baseball, whereas Walker and his brother Weldy were both on the Toledo Blue and stockings, Toledo Blue stockings, excuse me, of the American Association, which was basically the second Major League in 1884 when they played on that team. So it's not that what you've learned is wrong. It says, there's always more to learn. <laughs> all right, Brian, set us all straight. So, I mean, Seth's right. Um, it was more of a minor league, uh, the International Association, with which the um, Lynn Live Oaks played in. So it wasn't, it was professional in the sense that it was openly professional. Um, in I mean, quarters, and people were getting paid all the way back to the 1860s. But it was it was kind of like those jobs or or kind of under the table. If you were saying openly professional um, minor league, then it would be I would think it would be Bud Fowler. But there's also been some potential discrepancies about were there was there I, I think there was a player for the um, Providence Grays who they questioned his ethnicity. So I mean I don't know if we'll ever know for sure. Um, but Bud like Bud Fowler is just an interesting figure and that he traveled all over the country and part of my article is about why did he leave Cooperstown New York and uh, John Jackson and end up in Chelsea Massachusetts and take the name Bud Fowler and you know my goal in this research was to find some of that but Chelsea uh, Historical Society the Mass Historical Society um, every, the, the Boston app like Athenaeum the Boston Public Library all of them say they have absolutely nothing on Bud Fowler or any records on Chelsea because there were big fires in Chelsea. So a lot of it's going to be speculation and just focus on him actually playing in Massachusetts in the 1870s. Yeah, I think that's a really, I mean, 
what Brian is sort of alluding to in part of that answer is if people did pass for white who society at the time deemed were not white, but they managed to pass, we don't know about it now. They did such a good job that we don't know about it now. There have always been rumors about folks and people who tried and all the rest. And if people passed, they did such a good job that we don't have any sort of record on, you know, what can often be a very nebulous kind of concept based on somebody's uh, ancestry. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I agree totally. I, there's, there's so many things like even digging into like individual family genealogical record. Like we know, like I know for instance that I've got, uh, you know, Choctaw, uh, American Indian blood in me, but every time we'd look deep into the records and you know talk, try to find things that my ancestors that we think were, uh, try to find something connecting to them, and it's like, nope, we're not, nope. And it's like, but are you though? No, no. What do you What do you mean? Are you though? So, yeah, I I love the like the idea of like there's always more to learn, you know. Oh, yo. Us in the history field, we always have to be prepared for this newest find. <laughs> Got to change it all. But in the end, doesn't that really push our subject forward? Absolutely. Absolutely. So, all right. I want to ask you one more question, and then we'll, we'll get into the uh, you know our final rapid-fire question section here. Uh, you guys are going to be working together. Again, I got Brian Sheehy and Seth Tannenbaum, uh, Gilder Lehrman Summer Symposium, July 7th for Sport and American History. Uh, you guys, have you actually met in person? Nope. The power of Zoom has brought these two together. And I know July 7th, we still got four months, three and a half months to go here. What is it you'd say if, you know, what have you taught each other so far uh, that, you know, would make you such a good tandem for what we're going to be doing in July? Um, that's a really good question. Uh, I think we just immediately clicked when we started talking. Um, I saw some of what Brian was teaching, some of his lesson plans. And I was like, my goodness, I wish I had had, you know, this kind of focus when I was, in high school and this is you know if my students that i'm teaching in college had high school history teachers setting them up to do this i could do so much more with what i'm doing in college because they would have this excellent foundation so i was immediately enthused because the quality of brian's teaching was so obvious to me right from the get-go thank you um i i, I seth i'm just definitely looking at it some of your work and like your your list of all the resources that you that you have and you've put together I think is, is really interesting and I'm really looking forward to putting some of this together like even reading your new article I I, I, I can't wait to talk more in depth with you about some of that stuff in person and, and uh, really kind of craft something that that teachers can take away I mean like I mentioned earlier I think that a great professional development is where you learn the content and Seth knows the content and I, as the teacher, can kind of give you, give the teachers who may not be as familiar with sport 
recommendations, ideas, um, suggestions on how to incorporate certain things. Cause I've done a lot of that stuff and I've created a lot of stuff. So I'm really looking forward to that kind of partnership and, and building something really, really interesting. Thank you. Well, this is a, it, it's a cool opportunity here again for anybody, for, for anybody listening that will be in the Gettysburg area uh, on July 7th, again, it's Gilder Lehrman sport and American history uh, for, Seth Tannenbaum, uh, when when do you think that dissertation might be done? Oh, the dissertation is done. It's the book manuscript that I am oh, okay. uh, revising. The so sitting next to me on the desk that you can't see is the epilogue that needs revising. So that's where I am in the in the process of of that. So I need to revise that epilogue and send it back to the publisher and keep my fingers crossed. So Seth, soon to be. You know, hopefully soon to be uh, with a with a book on on the shelf, and hopefully all of your shelves. And for Brian, our Mary Kay Bonsteel Tacow Teacher of the Year Award winner, um, gentlemen. And I don't know, Beryl, if you've got some music to kind of cue up for uh, for the old Pepper, but we're gonna be <laughs> we're gonna be rolling out uh, the the patented. Barrel Roller Pepper, and this is where we will ask each each of our participants here the same question, and we'll kind of go back and forth. So it'll go Seth, then Brian, Brian, then Seth, Seth, then Brian. So it'll be uh, questions. Some are baseball, some are teaching, some are neither. Uh, and we will judge to see who is, in fact, the winner for today's interview. <laughs> These are questions. <laughs> These are questions that will require uh, that require deep thought on our part. I certainly did not steal most of them from the Colbert questionnaire. Uh, for those who are aware of it, here we go. Seth, what is the best sandwich? Uh, turkey, avocado, Swiss cheese. Brian, Italian with everything. They're both right. <laughs> Brian, what is one thing that you own that you should really throw away? Ooh. My wife would say all my books, but I don't like that answer. I don't like that answer. Oh, um, probably the, like some of the broken bats that I have. Uh, I definitely have some very old, very ratty t-shirts that once meant something to me uh, that I promise I'm going to pay someone to turn into a quilt and it will never happen. <laughs> I got some of those too that for some reason they like they shrink around the stomach area. So I don't know how that <laughs> Like I got to talk to our t-shirt guy because poor quality. Uh, Seth, what is the scariest animal? Oh, uh, Wolverine. Damn right. <laughs> Brian. Grizzly bear. Grizzly bear. How do you, how do we get away from a grizzly bear? Do we get away? Do we run away? Do we try to become bigger? What are you guys' takes on the grizzly bear? Stuck in cover. Stay out of California and Alaska and you're fine. <laughs> Newly noted. Uh, where are we at? Uh, Brian, what is in all resources, everything available to you, 
what is the next class that you would design for your students? Ooh. Next class I would design for my students. I'd probably do a local history class. All right, Seth. I taught local history classes. They're fantastic. Uh, I've got an urban sport class that is working its way through the curriculum committee as we speak um, that will involve some field trips to look at things like, you know, if I had more, well, you said money doesn't matter. So we'd go to Hoboken and we'd look at the Elysian fields and then we'd be like, okay, so do you understand why we're here now? And then we'd go to where Ebbets Field was and we'd go to where the polo ground was and then we'd end up at, at uh, City Field and stuff like that. Um, you said no costs. Yep. No, that's what we're doing. <laughs> sort of an urban local sports class. Nice. Seth, apples or oranges? Apples. Brian. Oranges. Oh, I've driven a wedge. I've driven a wedge between them. Both are good, though. Uh, <laughs> uh, Brian, have you ever asked someone for their autograph? And if so, who? Does it asking for my kids count or? Uh, it depends on the story. Whatever the best story is. Um, yeah, sure. Uh, I went with my kids and they, and they asked, um, Chris sale up in, um, Portland, Maine for the, for his autograph. Then I took the, uh, my boys to Syracuse and they, um, saw him again. They got his autograph again. And then we, uh, talked to him at breakfast because he had pitched, um, the day before. So not really a great one. Uh, I was at the vet. I was a kid. Um, I can't remember why we were there so early, um, but I couldn't get any of the Phillies to sign for me because these were like the late 90s, very bad, very angry Phillies. Um, but Matt Morris of the St. Louis Cardinals signed for, for me on a T-shirt that is probably in a pile of T-shirts that is falling apart somewhere. <laughs> um, and that is, I don't know anything else about Matt Morris. I could only play him on Immaculate Grid if it was Cardinals pitchers. And I was thinking clearly that morning. <laughs> well, at least somebody did. At least somebody had the decency to do it. Uh, Seth, favorite action movie? Uh, the Professional. Oh. Brian. Odin the Barbarian. Beryl, are, are either of them correct? No, the answer is Die Hard, but The Professional, <laughs> The Professional, it's a good movie. <laughs> Points for uh, the profession. Brian. <laughs> Brian, favorite smell? Favorite smell? Um, Oranges. <laughs> callback. A nice callback <laughs> there, Seth. Uh, I'm going to say this loud enough so that she can hear it, but my wife's chocolate chip cookies. Uh, well played, my friend. Well played. <laughs> All right. Seth, least favorite smell. <laughs> oh. what, are we, what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> I don't even know if I can. <laughs> um, uh, rotten milk. Yes. Oh. Mm-hmm. Brian. My son's batting gloves. Oh. It was the best thing I've ever smelled. I can smell them right Wait, now. Wait, what's wrong with you? I can smell them. <laughs> Take a whiff. Uh, 
Brian, most used app on your phone? Waze. Good one. Seth? Probably the email app. I'm pretty boring. I I find I'm I'm on Instagram way too much. Like I, I shouldn't be. And yet I just like I'm I'm like the prototypical forty year old that I'm just fascinated when I see celebrities on Instagram. <laughs> um the uh Seth, you get once uh no. Weirdest non baseball subject you'd consider yourself able to hold a conversation in. Uh I'm an expert in hot dogs and their history. Oh, but it's also sort of a baseball subject. Oh my god! Oh <laughs> my god! Have you written a paper about hot hot dogs in American sports? Several. What? Yes. I am on. Yes. I am on mville.edu. I've got your profile yes. right yes. here in front of me. Get, get to my CV. Get to my. Go to my personal website. Get to my CV. I, I gave a paper at, at the Cooperstown Symposium about hot dogs, actually. Uh, I've got another thing in the works. Uh, I wrote about hot dogs at the Astrodome. I've got another thing in the works on uh, the, you know, like last 15 years of we're going to dump local flavors on top of hot dogs and sell them at ballparks so that people feel like they're actually really experiencing the local elements of the ballpark because you don't get enough of it, apparently, unless you're eating crab cakes on top of a hot dog in Baltimore. <laughs> why why American leaders relish hot dog diplomacy? Is that what I'm supposed to be? Yeah, I got for? interviewed for that. Yeah, I got <laughs> interviewed for that. That was fun. Oh, my God. I got something Man. to read this weekend. <laughs> sorry sorry to interrupt. Go, Jeff. Part, there's a part two. There's a part two of this interview, I think, that's coming. <laughs> uh, Brian, weirdest non-baseball subject you consider yourself able to hold a conversation in. I can hold my phone on a bunch of subjects. My brother's not going to like this because I stopped drinking beer about seven or eight months ago. Um, but I could, I was pretty knowledgeable about beer and the history of beer. Mm. I, I've, I've tried to expand now into uh, gin and other things. So um, I'm uh, trying to become a whole store of uh, alcoholic beverages. You're aging. You're aging. That's what's happening. I am. It's a well-rounded <laughs> palate. That's all it is. All right. Last one. Brian, you get one song to listen to for the rest of your life. What is it? Dropkick Murphy's Barroom Hero. Oh. I thought he was going to say the other okay. one. I was going to cry. I hear that song way too much. Okay. <laughs> Seth, last one. You can't always get what you want by Rolling Stones. You can't always Boy. get what you want. That's a good one. <laughs> I'm in. I'd I'd like to I'd like to declare you know a, a good tie, but anytime you can drop the fact that you wrote an entire paper and gave a session about hot dogs, man, you you got me on tubed meat, my friend. That's you got me. Oh yeah, Seth went on hot dogs. So, Was there any doubt after the hot dog thing happened? <laughs> I'll concede the loss on that one. <laughs> so there you go, Seth. All that hard work you put into you know. Hey, I, I knew there was a reason I, I did that. Yeah. <laughs> your uh, your trophies in the mail. Uh, right. So 
Gentlemen, it has been a pleasure. Uh, we thank you all very much again. Brian Sheehy, Seth Tenbaum, uh, July 7th, Gilder Lehrman presentation of sport in American history. Uh, for any teachers that are listening and are connected with Gilder Lehrman, uh, you are going to definitely want to be a part of this. So, guys, it is, it's been a pleasure. I thank you all very, very much for uh, spending your, your time with us tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. All right, Beryl. Take us out, my friend. Sure. Well, you can find the Roller Around the Barrel Vintage Baseball podcast that talks to vintage baseball people from coast to coast, border to border. You can find us on Podbean, Apple, pretty much anywhere you can find a podcast situation. Also, go to our YouTube page, and you can see uh, not only can you see interviews that we had, and you'll see this one 15 minutes into it because I forgot to hit record, but you'll see 45 minutes of this hour-long uh, interview on YouTube, and uh, you'll also see uh, game action from the vintage community all over the country. And uh, if you have some video footage of your vintage baseball games and you'd like to get them out there to people, we'll be more than happy to share that kind of material on our page. So, on behalf of Cougar Jeff Kozleski, I'm the barrel roller Matthew Bernard, and uh, keep it station to station out there, would you? <laughs>